From KIOS in Omaha and Exarban Creative, you are listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today my guest is Ross Benish, author of the new book, Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. Then this country, you know, took this turn. People in New York City were very shocked by the heartland's embrace of a man like Donald Trump, which I wasn't as shocked. And I thought there was something there. So I went to explain it and to show like our state's been kind of going in this direction for a while now. It's uh, used to be a pretty bipartisan state. Clearly is not that way anymore. And um, takes that kind of dynamic, I think, to give such wide support for a figure like Trump. Rural Rebellion is available now wherever you get your books. Benish and I talk about the state, the country, some history, and what he sees going forward for Nebraska. Stay tuned for that conversation right here on Riverside Chats. You're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today's one of those episodes where I try to understand things. This, in this case, I'm trying to understand Nebraska politics. Nebraska politics particularly were interesting in the last year. We made the news when CD2 went for Joe Biden, giving one of our electoral college votes to the now president. Notably, the district was the one that shifted the most from going for President Trump in 2016 toward Joe Biden in 2020. Well, at the same time, though that shift happened, we saw people like Cara Eastman and Kate Bowles lose to Republican incumbents Don Bacon and Jeff Fortenberry. And so there's a lot of speculation about Nebraska politics, about trends, about demographics. And today I'm trying to get an understanding of it. I talk with Ross Benish, who wrote a new book all about the subject called Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. Benish talks about how Nebraska got to be the way it is primarily over the course of his lifetime. We talk about the national situation as well as his predictions for the future of the state in terms of the parties, in terms of what can happen, what might happen, and how everyone's taking the news. It's a great talk. I really enjoyed it. Here it is. My conversation with Ross Benish. His book, Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold, is available wherever you get your books. You know, there's the saying that uh, that history is written by the victors, and I don't know about you, but certainly after living through almost two terms of Pete Ricketts as governor, I find it pretty easy to buy into this idea that Nebraska's always been extremely loyal to the Republican Party. Um, so, like, I, I grew up in Omaha, and I don't remember uh, partisanship being as bad as it is now, but I do. I certainly remember there was, at least among certain religious people, there was kind of an animosity growing toward Democrats, but... I want to hear just from you because you grew up uh, not in Omaha, but in Nebraska. So, I mean, what was your experience like in terms of partisan mindsets as you were here? Yeah, you know, Democrats became like a cuss word over time, but I don't recall that being as strong in the 90s. And there was still like my family still would vote for like Ben Nelson. And I'm sure like most people in our congregation still voted for Ben Nelson. It, it, it was like really like in the 2000s where it solidified itself as oh my god these democrats you know like how how dare you support these uh godforsaken people um <laughs> you know that that timeline probably correlates with the repeal of the fairness doctrine and, and some of the um hard right you know media that that popped up after that time but um it's at the point now where um it's almost like uh, hiding a secret, I feel like, for someone to be a Democrat in Butler County, you know? Well, yeah, it's almost like everybody seems, even if they if they do lean left, it's like you have to preface it by like, well, I hate the party, but I have, you know, I, I have this belief or, you know, it's got to be sort of like this. Well, I believe in fiscal responsibility, but, you know, it's, it's always like there's this excuse that's almost built into it. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I, I hear that in New York from the opposite direction, too, like friends of mine who are, are kind of conservative. Of like, well, I hate Trump, but there's like these four other things that I like about Republicans that I dislike about Democrats, and that's why, like, you know, I'm not uh, gonna vote for for a Democrat. But uh, there there has to be some rationalization, I suppose, when you're in a community when the vast majority of people don't feel that way. So people probably want to justify that. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, in the research you've done, would you say is it normal to have this kind of hyper partisanship that sort of 
doesn't include a whole lot of critical thinking at times, but just sort of this almost sometimes blind loyalty to parties. Is that is that something that I mean, do you track that to the repeal of the fairness doctrine or is that just baked into America? I think it's pretty baked in right now because uh, this is a nationwide problem, too. This, you know, I, I write about Nebraska just because that's where I've spent like three fourths of my life. So I know a lot more about Nebraska than I do about any other place, including New York, where I, where I live right now. But um, yeah, right now, I, I feel like we're not getting a whole lot of thoughtful discussion about policy. And I don't know how you reverse that because um, the fairness doctrine is one thing, but you know that that regulation existed in an era with much different technology than today. I mean, now you can't even get Facebook to um, stop people from spreading like the craziest stuff imaginable. I don't know how you put the cat in the bag on that. I wish I had a, a more optimistic response for you. <laughs> yeah, I, sometimes I feel like this show, whenever I do a politics one, is just uh, I'm asking people who kind of know what they're talking about to tell me things will be okay. There's a way out of this. And, uh, I, don't, you know, I get varying degrees of confidence on, my, on the answers. Well, it doesn't always have to be as bad as it is now. I don't think it's going <laughs> to be a kumbaya moment anytime soon, but I'd like to think we can improve from this moment. Uh you know, seeing people trying to overtake the capital while we're stuck in our homes because of a deadly virus. Yeah. I mean, that's that's pretty dystopian. Yeah, so much so. I mean, I'll, I'm not going to say Orwellian, though, because it seems like 90% of people who say that <laughs> have not read 1984. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think for me that the pinnacle of partisan thinking, uh, it, it peaked with the Roy Moore campaign uh, to represent Alabama in the special election. And like, so Moore had been credibly accused of sexual assault against several minors, and there were a lot of Republicans who withdrew their endorsements. But then you have President Trump saying that despite the allegations, it's better to have more in the Senate than to elect a Democrat. And, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine like a more stark uh, example of hyperpartisanship. And you probably noticed from my tone, just even in this first five minutes here, I'm, I'm very critical of the concept. Uh, what do you think about partisanship in general? Is there like a healthy version of partisanship? Or I mean, you know, where, where do you yeah, mean? Yeah, partisanship isn't doesn't have to be such a, a bad thing. Like partisanship increases um, participation. It gets people to be active. Um, people who are partisan are, are more likely to vote. So there's a civic engagement. So it doesn't have to be such a bad thing. It um, it could be used for good. But we're at such an elevated level now that. Um, if someone isn't of the party that you are, you're tempted to just shut them down or they're going to shut you down, especially among politicians. And you you just can't absolutely get anything done because of this divide. And that's a point where um, if we were looking at partisanship, like on a psychological way, it'd be like a, a mental illness because it interferes with your ability to function. Like that's how you would, you know, a, a therapist would, would um, tell someone that they have an illness if they were acting the way that our country's body politic acts with this thing that completely impedes their ability to function and, and like do the things they're supposed to do. So, I mean, like let's, let's for as far as you go, were you, did you grow up in the partisan family? Did you have some kind of awakening or how did you start to get interested in all of this? Yeah. You know, my family's pretty conservative and they still are conservative, but it's kind of funny that I'm writing a book about politics because my parents don't really care that much and like we would talk way more about husker football than politics like who would be like the fourth string tailback for the huskers in like 2003 occupied way more of our mental energy than who was running for congress and uh and not, and not just husker football like there's so many things we were interested in more than politics so i wouldn't say i was in a very um political family at all i, I became more liberal over time uh part of that is like i just kept moving to more liberal areas like lincoln is a lot different than brainerd i went to school in lincoln and then i moved to detroit which is you know a more liberal area than like the first congressional district in nebraska is and then i'm in new york city which is um a parody of liberalism in, in some ways uh so that's certainly influenced my thinking but what's gotten me into this is this crazy direction our country's taken like in the last like five years, I was actually going to write a book about pro wrestling um, back in like 2016, 2017. I had just written two books about sex 
and I was going to like do my next book on like all these like low culture things that I like, like pro wrestling and monster trucks and saying clown posse. I find this stuff awesome. Um, I am not a um, sophisticated man. And then this country, you know, took this turn. People in New York City were very shocked uh, by the heartland's embrace of a man like Donald Trump, which I wasn't as shocked. And I thought there was something there. So I went to explain it and to show like our state's been kind of going in this direction for a while now. It's uh, used to be a pretty bipartisan state. Clearly is not that way anymore. And um, takes that kind of dynamic, I think, to give such wide support for uh, a figure like Trump. And in, it's really the whole region, too. You know, it's the whole plains. So, I mean, when you talk about football, I mean, I, I certainly anybody who lives in Nebraska knows talking about the Huskers is, uh, you know, a thing everyone can kind of, you know, I don't follow it that much, but you can always find some way to talk about that pretty much with whoever you're talking about. Although I see a lot of parallels now uh, between hyperpartisanship and the way that we treat sports, right? It, it's become very similar mentality. I mean, to the extent where it's almost it becomes abstract, the the politics and the impact of the politics, as opposed to my team is winning, uh, you know, my team is winning becomes almost the, the dominant mindset as opposed to here are the direct policy impacts of who I'm voting for. Right. Have you found yeah. that to be the case? It's a little bit the case. There's also another parallel that the Democrats are winning about as often as the football team is right now. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, Is that good for anyone? Do you feel like uh, when you talk about how uh, like the, the sophistication level of things you were interested in, had politics um, just lowered down to the level of like wrestling? <laughs> yeah, by the time you got it was. Yeah, yeah it, it was too highbrow for me when I was growing up. And now it's just like trash television. Uh, and for someone who likes to dumpster dive and watch pro wrestling, I'm like, oh, I, what's on TV is, is very relatable. Yeah, the, the, you know, there isn't as big of a jump. Um, cause it's not nuanced policy discussion. Usually it's, um, like blood sport, you know? So, I mean, were you a history buff before this then? A little bit more of a social science buff in general. Um, I triple majored at UNL in journalism, psych and econ. And like my first book on sex was like very much, um, interdisciplinary, um, it was like Freakonomics without pants, you know, it's like how does sex indirectly influence our society, looking at it like religion, history, um, politics is, is part of that. But just social science in general, um, I, I find sociology and psychology probably the most fascinating. Politics um, is the most annoying, but right now the most pressing concern because uh, so many decisions are being made so poorly. So, I mean, when, when we talk about Nebraska and the way that it has developed its political identity over, I don't know, however long, were you, I mean, did you, I haven't had a chance to read your book since it just came out, but I did read the 538 article, but I mean, do you get into stuff like William Jennings Bryan and, uh, I don't know, the start of, I don't know, something that's very, very different from the way that we would think about, you know, what influence the Nebraska Democratic Party has today? Oh, yeah. The, the, I, I talk a little bit about Bryan. I actually wanted to call the book Cross of Gold. Um, after Brian's speech, because Brian was like ranting against capitalists, like, you know, taking it to the bankers and, and, and to anyone who was putting down like, you know, the common man. And that's what he talked about in his famous cross of gold speech. And now it's like the like mob is going to follow this crazy, uh, you know, television personality who's a billionaire and likes to see his face reflected in gold. I mean, it's like you're nailing yourself to a cross of gold. That's, but we, we went with, with a different title. But Brian uh, is talked about a little bit, um, you know, same with like Jay Sterling Morton and, and some of those early Nebraska politicians. But the book is much more focused on the last 30 years. I mean, there are historical illusions all throughout, whether I'm talking about politics at the University of Nebraska or, um, you know, immigration history in the, in, in the state. I, I do go back at times, but primarily we're looking at 1990 to 2020 because that's when uh, the state became very far right-leaning. You know, when, when I was born, um, it was much more bipartisan. I'm also looking at that because the book is half memoir and I was born in 1989. So um, it's really like what's happened in my lifetime with some historical illusions uh, sprinkled in so let's, before that time. Broadly then at the beginning, what happened in 1990? Yep. Yep. 1990, um, 
yeah, is like probably the main starting point because I'm talking about like my birth. And, uh, well, yeah, so I get that that's that's when you started, but uh, like as far as the uh, politics, what was it that was going on in 1990? Well, no, 1990 we were bipartisan. I mean, we had Democratic uh, two two U.S. senators, uh, governor, House rep, attorney general, auditor, and the Republicans we elected weren't as far right as those today. Like uh, like Doug B. Ryder is a conservative politician, but he was way more moderate than like most of the Republicans in Congress today. And same with Chuck Hagel. Like I would never call Chuck Hagel a moderate back then, but like compared to now, the Republican Party's gone far right of where, where Hagel was. So it was a time where we put people forward from both parties and they were seemingly more reasonable than like what's happened and what we put forth today. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking today with Ross Benish, who wrote a new book called Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. People look up to this concept of the center and that moderate the, to, to be moderate is somehow the best. And I get that, you know, this idea that the truth is usually in the middle. I see where people come to that. But it seems to me that if one party, if you have two parties and one party can dictate where the middle is by going further and further one way or the other, then it does sort of skew our idea of what the center is or what it means to be moderate. Right. So, well, yeah, that's what's considered moderate today would be like far right 10 years ago within the state of Nebraska, that is. So what is it about the Republican Party that appealed so effectively? How did they do that? Well, a lot of it's through religion. The first chapter of the book is about abortion because that's been the issue that has allowed them to gain a lot of voters in those rural towns like where I grew up. You know, that when I was in Brainerd, uh, we were part of the Lincoln Diocese. I mean, it's like the most conservative diocese in the U.S. Uh, Fabian Bruskowitz is, is pretty uh, famous for being notoriously conservative. He, he was the bishop who confirmed me and confirmed thousands of others in that diocese. And, you know, you just heard so much more about abortion than you did anything else. It's very much culture war driven. And the church did a lot of great things. I mean, it brought the town together. It had so many events, like it taught people to live selflessly. But um, when you don't hear anything about labor unions or the poor or like protecting immigration or being against the death penalty, things that are historically social teachings of the church. And you just hear like abortion is bad and anyone who like, you know, doesn't like identify extremely pro-life is also a bad politician. That wears on people. And it's, you know, it's not just one issue that brought people over, but that issue had a bigger impact than any other in that whole region. And there's been a lot of books written about it too. I mean, they Republicans have been very skillful in using that issue to uh, get people to um, gravitate toward their party and then, you know, portray the Democrats as being like cosmopolitan and, and you know, too urban and all these other things. And um, it's had an unfortunate effect uh, nationwide, really, you know, this this split by party um, and um, population density, that correlation just continues to get stronger, uh, even in states where there's, you know, heavy urbanization. Yeah, I mean, I, I notice even anytime I drive, you know, through Nebraska, there's still tons of signs about abortion all over the highway or, you know, and I, I guess how coordinated was that? Because it does sound like it's an intentional. I think it's very coordinated. Talk about that. Who's who's coordinating it? How did it happen? Well, Republican operatives and uh church groups. I mean, I can't think of the names of them right now, but I know in the 90s, I mean, there were groups that existed to link, <laughs> and it's not just Catholic, there were groups that existed to link politicians to evangelicals. You know, like, that was a very uh, coordinated effort to pull the party in that direction. Of course, there was mo the more moderate wing and the more business-minded wing, but um, that, like, far-right culture war wing uh was really effective. What, um, is, what is it that draws them to it, though? Like, if you're one of these religious groups who wants to be part of the coordinated effort, you're. I mean, what's the appeal to marry yourself to the Republican Party so thoroughly in that? Yeah. Um, well, if you do strongly believe, you know, we could say people are voting against their own interests, but if, for someone who's a religious zealot, abortion really is the number one issue. You know, uh, we're, we're kind of condescending them if we don't think that it's actually serious that they're just like doing this for cosplay or something so if they think that really is a serious issue and this party is willing to give them attention and praise and all this other stuff it 
it'd be difficult to turn that down. And um, it's, it's been a, a huge problem. The United States Conference of, of Catholic Bishops has been very much in bed with the Republican Party, especially, um, you know, since John Paul II was Pope and, and the leadership he chose to, um, you know, be bishops in the U.S. I mean, very uh, supportive of the Republican Party, even when they didn't officially endorse. I mean, they would say enough in their rallies and in their sermons that you clearly knew um, who they wanted you to, to pull for. And uh, the the more um, you know, social justice part of the church still exists, but I, I think it's been drowned out a little bit. It, it hasn't um, had as much of a political impact as the you know evangelical right wing part has. But I mean, so a question that I have about that is certainly there are some changes that can be made, but ultimately the Supreme Court had ruled on abortion before any well, of that's this. what's so frustrating about it is this gets brought into like the mayor's this got brought into the heath mellow mayor race right. four years ago and what i mean what the hell is the mayor of omaha gonna do he's not, you know this this isn't a supreme court justice it gets brought into city council races it, it's insane yeah so i guess what is it just kind of like a virtue signal or i mean what making that the dominant issue has been extremely successful but also i mean successful in the sense of helping the republican party has it been that successful in terms of actually doing anything about abortion though i don't think so uh i mean getting like you know kavanaugh and like all these you know uh federalist judges on the supreme court will probably have an impact but all this campaigning that happens with people in the state legislature or uh, for mayor's races i don't think it really does much because that's a court decision and you know we're electing people now based off something that really isn't a main part of the job description but a lot of people aren't like who vote you know they're, they're not digging deeply into the policies or or, or you know thinking necessarily what do i want the you know city council person or the mayor to do they're they're voting with their party and they've come to identify with that party uh if they're a republican in many cases through like that sort of wedge issue so is it religion then that's the answer to why republicans were able to successfully get that loyalty and democrats were not or i mean what why is it that one party was so dramatically more uh, successful in my experience, religion ha- had the biggest impact, but um, the, the, you know, there's certainly there's certainly other factors. Um, I think guns is, is also part of it. The, the right has really been able to portray like any moderate, like slight gun regulation as like the apocalypse, and they've really been able to get loyal voters from that because. People fear, you know, Democrats are going to take their guns. There's just a story in the Journal Star the other day. Gun sales are like through the roof now that uh, Biden is, is about to be inaugurated. You know, people who are buying those guns probably already have a few dozen guns, none of which have ever been taken by the government. But they'll go out, buy more guns, and vote for a Republican again. Um, so those issues have been really effective. I'm talking with Ross Benish, author of the new book, Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. You can find the book at your local bookstore or wherever you like to get your books. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and let us know what you think. We'll be back with more of the conversation after this break. Wherever or however you're listening to this podcast right now, you should take a moment and check out Stitcher. For those who don't know, Stitcher is a free podcast app for iPhone and Android and home to over 260,000 podcasts. Stitcher also has smart recommendations, playlists, a car mode, even a sleep timer. While the Stitcher app is free to use, they also offer a premium subscription called Stitcher Premium that has exclusive bonus episodes from top shows, exclusive shows from top hosts, and ad-free listening all for only $4.99 a month or $34.99 a year. Like pop culture, you can listen to exclusive bonus episodes from Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness or LeVar Burton Reads, plus get early access to episodes of The Dream, plus many more on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcher.com slash premium to sign up today and use promo code Riverside on the monthly plan to get your first month free. If you're a fan of Riverside Chats and want to see the show not only continue but expand in new spin-off shows including a film club, a book club, and a news roundup, please consider becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash riversidechats. 
For as low as just $1 a month, you get access to exclusive audio as well as our full backlog of episodes. Our most recent 50 are always free. Older than that goes behind the paywall. So you get that plus exclusive content over at patreon.com slash riversidechats. Please consider becoming a patron today. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Remember that you can always find our most recent 50 episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and leave us a review today or become a patron over at patreon.com slash Riverside Chats to get access to the full Riverside Chats backlog. Today I'm talking with Ross Benish, who has a new book out called Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. It does a good job assessing how we got to be where we are. And it's available wherever you get your books. Here's the rest of my conversation with Ross Benish. I've certainly found that the more I look into politics, the more I talk to people involved in it, that we like to believe that it's really an ideological clash that's happening in the country, whereas a lot of the people who speak in ideology don't passionately believe a lot of what they say. And it is, you know, it's an issue of power. It's an issue of money. So, I mean, do you feel like uh, in what you're saying, is it is it an issue of control and power more so than actually being about some of these topics? Or how do you feel well, about I, it? I, you know, I, the actual voters themselves, I think, are overwhelmingly good people. I think malice it motivates a lot of political messaging. So a lot of the especially the dark money groups since, since uh, the deregulation of campaign finance. I mean, you just get an onslaught of terrible attack ads uh, by people who you can't really track. Um, the people who are paying for that type of messaging to aggravate fears about guns, I don't think actually care. A lot of times they probably live in Washington and don't, they probably don't even own any guns, but they'll, you know, drop a few hundred K in a pack to make people fearful in Nebraska about it. Um, I, I think that is opportunistic. And um, yeah, like cynical, but uh, to the end voter, I don't believe the end voter is always operating out of cynicism. They may truly believe that this thing that they hold dear could be under attack because they see those messages, their algorithm uh, on their social media pages, just continually like just giving them this drivel over and over again. And they probably live in, if they're in a small town, they live in a community where these messages are repeated over and over. When you hear, uh, you know, your friends at the bar uh, talk about guns that way, and then you get it from talk radio, then you get it from your Facebook page. It's easy to come to that conclusion, even if you're, you know, being sincere about it. So I, I fault the the messengers much more than the recipients, even though the recipients are the ones who end up voting. Cause I think there's still a lot of great people um, who, um, Gosh, I don't. If I say they're being manipulated, then I sound like I'm being condescending. But like I'm, you know, condescending to them. But they, um, they, they have a lot of things that are influencing them to go that way, and the messaging isn't proportionate from the other side. There, when when you live in a town like Brainerd, there isn't the equivalent of like a progressive messaging. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you you know, you're probably hearing like a like a eight to two ratio of like you know conservative ads coming your way and conservative messaging in the bar and in the church coming your way compared to progressive. And that has a toll. I mean, is that just, is that because of the fact that people are already sort of dug in with the party? Like, would it be worthwhile for the Nebraska democratic party to go to Brainerd or worthwhile for them to go to Brainerd? It would be. Yeah, I think so. Cause, uh, Ignoring those places isn't going to help anyone. And, you know, eventually you got to become a little more competitive statewide if, if you want to have a chance at like winning governor's office or, or a Senate seat. You know, you can't only win in, in Omaha or Lincoln if you want to have a, a true effect on the state. And I think they are trying to go in those areas. It's tough, though. You know, they're, they're, they're significantly outspent. And then they have this 30 year problem where, um, people in those areas have a bad perception of Democrats. So it's, if you're um, a political operative, it's a hell of a lot easier being a Republican operative and setting up a, an event in David City, Nebraska, than it is if you're a Democrat. It takes bravery for a Democrat <laughs> to go in those areas because uh, he may get attacked. I mean, not physically, but like, you know, people don't like Democrats out there. Well, and you talk about in your 538 article how there's occasionally a clash between what Republicans are doing with policy and what's actually popular in terms of what people want from their government. So I have a list here of some things in your article where you talk about uh, Ricketts bitterly fighting to prevent DACA recipients from obtaining driver's licenses, the state attorney general 
suing the federal government to end DACA, attempts by the state legislature to eliminate prenatal care, attempts to eliminate Nebraska's Board of Education, et cetera. So, I mean, is there a clash, though, between loyalty because you just know you like this party and then the actual thing the party wants to do? Also, because I imagine that the party's goals are not completely static, right? If the shift of the party is moving one direction, that might be faster. It might be moving faster than the actual ideology of the people who vote with that party, right? Yeah, I think the Republican Party has moved to the right further than the than the voters have. And maybe in some cases it's dragged the voters along with them because they continue to identify with that party. So, you know, then they'll, you know, adopt that position to help justify their beliefs. We're all prone to cognitive dissonance, my, myself included. But um, those positions you, you gave, many of them are not popular and they're driven by the national GOP. Uh, I mean, I, if you polled most Nebraskans, I don't think they would say we need to end DACA and end the you know, state board of education, but that ideology um, is, is driven by the, the national Republican party. And as long as most people identify and vote for Republicans in our state, they're going to get more stuff like that pushed their way, which yeah, it creates a disconnect popularity for that party. But then on those positions, not so much popularity. That's why you see and you see some uh, voters in Nebraska support progressive issues, but then not support the Democratic candidate who would push those, you know, support for Medicaid expansion, support for minimum wage increase, support to cap payday loan interest rates. If they get marijuana on the ballot, I bet you'll see decent support for that, too. But then, like, if a Democrat ran on those, I doubt they'd win statewide, you know, probably have trouble winning CD2 even um, just it's a huge disconnect on. Um, the issues the voters actually support and care for and the party they identify with. And I wish I had a good solution for how they could fix it. I don't know if anyone does. There's a lot being thrown out there right now, but it's a massive problem. I, I also see a disconnect in just the concept of what it means to be conservative right now. Uh, like a good example this year would be someone like Ricketts talks about how uh, local control is always the best thing. Basically like we, we need to be, we need to make sure that, there's not overreach, whether it's a federal level or even sometimes at a state level. But then if a city decides that they want to pass a mask mandate, you know, for a while, that was very controversial and, you know, potentially worth taxpayer dollars to sue the city. So, I mean, I do you, in the research that you come across, do you have a working definition of what it means to be conservative in Nebraska in, in, in our current time? Yeah, it's it's tough because there's a lot of there's a lot of things they do that aren't conservative that I consider more reactionary. Yeah, conservative to me is like you're um, you're trying to hold on to a tradition and like you know protect like the status quo and um, there's historically been like a philosophical undercurrent for many conservative positions that Republicans used to take um, local control that would be a conservative position sue threatening to sue the city of Omaha over passing a mask mandate is not conservative that's just reactionary. Mm -hmm. And um, now um, with Republicans, I don't see a ton of thoughtful conservatism. There's some there's some state lawmakers like like in the state legislature who actually are really conservative, but like are in a thoughtful way, not in this reactionary way um, with with Ricketts and with, you know, most of our congressional delegation. Um, I, I see it. I see that as more reactionary uh policy that is dressed up as being conservative but yeah what, what's conservative about suing a city who wants to enforce its own rules to protect public health what, what's conservative about like the capping how school districts spend their own, own money you know if we're really about local control so that's just reactionaryism yeah well that, that, that strikes me as one of the basic problems with being uh completely loyal to a party is there's not a whole lot of accountability if you know people will vote one way no matter what, right? And so I, I, certainly yeah. parties will exploit that. That's And that's something I, I discuss in the book is that this is why I have an issue with Nebraska's single-sided turn for the right over my lifetime is that without um, effective competition from the Democrats in most races, Republicans kind of do whatever they want. And so – that's why, like, they didn't have to moderate their stance on stuff like minimum wage or Medicaid expansion, even though that's what voters wanted, because they could win by going against voters' interests. 
if they had like, you know, strong, healthy competition, even if a Republican won, they might have to actually get aligned with voters. Otherwise, they'd lose the next election. But whoever wins the GOP nominee for governor knows that after they get out of that primary, they can say whatever they want and they'll cruise to victory in the general. So let's let's talk about that, because uh, CD2 is kind of an interesting case study where you have I think it's the district that moved furthest away from Trump from 2016 to 2020. But then at the same time, you've got Kari Eastman and Kate Bowles, who were strong candidates who did pretty well as far as you could, as far as they could go, as far as they could, but then still lost to incumbents Don Bacon and Jeff Fortenberry. Then you have the Senate race against Sass, which was barely enough to get Sass to even come back to the state to campaign. <laughs> so how do you square the presidential results with the uh, underwhelming results Democrats had on a congressional level? Well, a lot of people who voted for Biden were voting against Trump and just because there were many people in Omaha who were tired of Trump, they weren't necessarily tired of the Republican Party. Don Bacon is clearly much more popular than Donald Trump in Omaha. Like mm-hmm. he, he got overwhelmingly more votes th- than Trump, even though they're the same party. Uh, so I guess if they, if Republicans had a um, less bombastic presidential candidate, maybe they would have won the, 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 the CD2 presidential race. Um, and that's, that's tough for, for Democrats to take though. Um, because Cara was one of the better candidates they've had run for Congress for a while and they still can't get the job done. Even when, when Biden pulls through, uh, you know, Bacon's probably more popular than we may have realized going into it. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking today with Ross Benish, who has a new book out called Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. It's out now, wherever you get your books. So I guess what I'm kind of trying to figure out here then is if part of the way to, at the very least, create a real sense of accountability from the Republican Party in Nebraska, even if you can't necessarily shake the overwhelming loyalty they have, is what is what do Democrats do? Because I'm hearing from you that some of it just boils down to Democrats are worse at marketing in Nebraska than Republicans are. Well, in general, too. I mean, yeah. I think Democrats are worse at marketing nationwide. So is that the biggest thing they could do to shift their circumstances? Uh, it's a, how, how the, the biggest thing they could do, um, man, that, that's a good question because they're, they're, they're in a bit of a hole right now. Um, you know, they're, they're improving their bench of candidates, but it's also tough to get people like really pumped when you see some of the like, people who they've nominated in recent years. I mean, you mentioned the Senate race that they had a candidate who they were trying to push out in Janicek and um, attorney general in 2018, you know, you had a guy who had to drop out of the race because he got in trouble for strangling his own father. And, you know, they've had trouble recruiting in other places, really outside of CD two. It's been tough. Uh, you know, governor's race, you had to get Bob Christ, who was a former Republican. So uh, even though Eastman and Bowles, loss that they were uh, good candidates if, if they can you know find more candidates like that and consistently put them forth you know, maybe they could pick up a win in cd2 or maybe a win in the Omaha mayor's race and build some momentum so you know candidate selection though you know that's again that's like a 30-year problem uh after exon left and then like carrie and nelson became governor the party wasn't built up the same way in the 90s and it's an issue they're they're still dealing with and you know it's taken a while to um to replenish that well it's tough to get people to run too yeah um you know i I had a good conversation with kim roback while i was um writing this book she's a lobbyist she was lieutenant governor under ben nelson and you know she was just very forthright in saying oh i thought about running for u.s senate but then you look at how much money you have to run and how much the republicans are going to run and you have a statistical disadvantage and i didn't think there was a way to win so i said what's the point and that was a very she would have been a very qualified candidate and you know if you can't convince that person to run um it's even harder to convince other people who don't have her credentials so does that mean that is nebraska still trending further right than what it already is as far as i can tell uh this year we're gonna have is conservative of a congressional delegation 
as we've had in my lifetime. Uh, Ricketts is still going to be as reactionary as he's ever been. There's, you know, legislature's got um, some decent moderate Republicans, and, and there's definitely some strong progressives in the legislature. But if they get just a few more votes, Republicans can override the filibuster. I mean, if, you know, if they are able to flip a few more seats in, in the next um, election. So by any political science measure, whether it's registered voters in the, you know, Democrats' share of registered voters has really fallen off the map in the last 30 years, or it's um, ideology, uh, whether you're looking at state legislature or the congressional districts or um, governor, and all the data points to it being very far right. Well, and then, just some exceptions, but not many. It's interesting to me. I've seen that as you've been sharing this data, both in terms of your book and then some of the articles you've written, you've drawn some ire, at least on Twitter, from Nebraska Democratic Party Chair Jane Klebe, uh and other people who, I don't know, it, it seems to me, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but something along the lines of feeling like you're perhaps too fatalistic or you're making a criticism of the way that they're operating right now. So, I mean, talk about some of the responses you're getting and how you feel about that. Yeah, I've gotten uh, a lot of people um, coming at me on Twitter and, and email who have been angry at me. It's kind of funny, though, because, you know, when I wrote an article for The Nation saying how Ricketts took over the legislature, that same party, um, you know, used my article in a campaign fundraiser. So, you know, I, I find their attacks sometimes to be a little opportunistic, but you know, it, it's fine. Um, it, it's also kind of amusing too, because my problem in the book that I'm diagnosing is the, the shift to the far right of the Nebraska Republican party. And I expect more Republicans to come after me, but Democrats seem a little more sensitive. Um, you know, think part of the reason they're so sensitive is they're they're always losing you know they don't have a a lot to fall back on right now i mean the biden win in cd2 was great they should be congratulated on that they definitely put in hard work and they've done some good work in the legislature but um state keeps drifting further to the right and they have a lot of forces working against them uh some of the party officials who and jane was actually the more one of the more reasonable ones and 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 um easier to have a dialogue with. So some people who have messaged me have been uh, worse <laughs> in how they've uh, framed it. And um, yeah, even though I, I got some tweets from Jane, she, she was actually more respectful and um, interested in having a you know decent conversation than some of the other tweets and emails I've received from, from people in, in recent weeks. I, I, I think a lot of times when I'm talking about these problems, people will take it personal but um, I'm just saying what has happened and really talking about the forces they're working against. I mean, there's if you're going to live in statistical reality, the state has drifted far right um, politically. I, to, to say Nebraska isn't a conservative state right now um, is, is to kind of live like in your own reality. But maybe you have to live in your own reality when you're going up against like a billionaire governor and like unlimited dark money pulling in and like your state's registration of voters keeps getting worse and you have a big brain drain problem like there's just a lot of issues you know the perception of the national democratic party in the state is not good that's another thing they have to work against so like the democrats have to work twice as hard as republicans so Maybe they see me as snooty as when I, when I write these articles and say these things, but um, I'm just saying what's happened. Well, it, it seems like that would be useful information because if you're if you're trying to change the trajectory, one of the things you would have to do is identify what you need to shift or what you need to change, or even just identify how you got there, right? So, uh, I, I guess on the flip side of that, have you heard from Republicans in Nebraska? Yeah, uh, I have heard from some Republicans after I've written these things, and um, they've mostly been um, pretty uh, agreeing with me on, like, especially the 538 article, other states drift to the far right. However, um, I heard uh, when I wrote, things I wrote for The Nation about some of the stuff Ricketts is doing in the legislature. Um, what I heard from Republicans then uh, it wasn't as cordial and I was called all sorts of names. Um, I gosh, there was one that was really funny. Um, what, I think someone called me a beef hater 
or it was something it was like a cattle tur it was, it was it was like it was like a it was a it was a it was a pejorative they made that was using like a farming term i can't remember what it was i wish i had it here i thought it was funny though um <laughs> so i guess depending on the article i'm gonna get hell from from somebody uh but the the book is just going out now so i'll probably get you know more responses in upcoming weeks because right now People have only read like a you know 500 word article here and there. The book's 80,000 words and goes much more in depth with like 100 interviews of, of people, um, and you're able to lay out things in a more nuanced way than uh, when you are with an article where you have to put a headline to, you know, get people to pay attention, and then you only have a short space to describe what's happening. It's very tough to do these excerpts and tell the complete story. When you talk about brain drain, it makes me think that uh, you're somebody who got out of Nebraska. So I mean, was that an easy choice for you? And uh, how do you feel about uh, brain drain in general and, you know, staying well, away from it? Was what an easy choice, like leaving Nebraska? Or? Yeah, it seems like a lot of people, uh, they either no, I, fantasize about it or they get out. Uh, no, you know, I, I wasn't fantasizing about it. Uh, it, it was a difficult choice. You know, I, uh, I write about this in the book, too. When I was in college, I was... Uh, in a very um i was in a a long-term relationship with this girl who i thought i was going to marry and i thought we were going to like settle down in nebraska live our whole lives in nebraska like all of our family members have and and that went to hell and ended in a you know abrupt way and and that um is kind of what led me on the trajectory to leave this state and then i also wanted to write books and when i was messaging literary agents they told me i needed to get more clips and I didn't really have any at that time. So I applied to internships and I got one in Detroit. So I moved to Detroit, even though I'd never been there, um, only like a week and a half after I applied for this internship. And then I moved to New York City after Detroit because um, I got a different internship there and I had also never been there. So this move like to leave the state wasn't one that I fantasized about. It happened during my last year living full time in Nebraska due to life circumstances. but. Those circumstances would have turned out differently, you know, I, I probably would have stayed home and lived like around Lincoln or Omaha area and just lived my life that way and, you know, found a different way to be happy. But life takes you where it takes you. And it's random that I'm here in New York right now. It's not a place that I uh, fantasized about, but it's where the jobs in my industry are right now. And, um, that's part of the, the brain drain problem is to, mm-hmm. to get those clips and to get those jobs. There are some journalism jobs in Nebraska, but they're, they're definitely dwindling. So Did you see, uh, state. we have a new Ricketts venture to uh, create a nonpartisan oh, news source. I could have, I could have worked for Joe Ricketts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would have just stayed long enough. Yeah. I'm sure he would let me be like the director of news at his, uh, <laughs> non-slanted uh political source you know says the guy who dropped 100k into turning points usa in in 2016 yeah so okay as we as we start to wrap up here uh i don't know who all you were able to talk to for your book but was there anyone who you got who had some surprising uh thoughts on your overall thesis or you know really was not something you maybe expected you'd stumble into well it's interesting talking to lee terry um the former um house rep uh, in Omaha, and he talked a lot about the Republican infighting during the Tea Party era and how that like tanked him. And he's a, I would consider him pretty far right. He's, I guess, moderate by like today's congressional Republican standards, but I mean, he'd be far right historically. And I, I was expecting him to hammer more at me about like Democrats being no good, but we chatted much more about, um, the Republican Party self-sabotage than we did anything else. And, and I thought that was, um, you know, pretty interesting thing to, to hear from. Yeah, it definitely seems like it's an interesting question of where do they go post-Trump, right? You know, what happens? What identity do they uh, commit to? Yeah, the, you know, that's a definitely a big problem nationally. But within the state, it seems like the state party is still pretty solidified under the governor's control. Mm-hmm. 
That's true. Yeah. And he is uh, taking the pro-Trump direction, I would say. Yeah, for sure. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, so we're, we're pretty much out of time. So where is a good place people should go to get your book or anything else that you currently have that you want to plug? Yeah. So uh, the book can be bought on any website that sells books. You know, you can buy it from Bookshop or, or Amazon or Barnes & Noble or straight from the publisher at the University Press of Kansas. I wish I could tell you specific stores in Omaha, but I'm not sure how much browsing is allowed in any bookstore during this pandemic. So maybe I shouldn't tell people to, I guess, contact your bookstore and see if they can help you obtain it. <laughs> yeah, I would yeah. like to support the local bookstores, but I know we're also limiting retail these days. Yeah, maybe try out the bookworm, see if they have it, I guess. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, call them up and, and if they don't have it, ask them to get it. Right. Yeah. So I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Uh, I had a great time uh, trying to understand everything that's happening in our, our state and our country as we broadly discuss your overall argument with the book. Uh, so thank you again for talking to me. Well, thank you for having me on here. Ross Benish's new book, Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold, is available wherever you get your books. Riverside Chats is produced in conjunction with KIOS and Exarban Creative. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos, and our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. You can find our entire backlog of episodes on patreon.com slash riversidechats. Our most recent 50 are always available for free on whatever podcast app you like most. Please subscribe today so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, give us a review. Let people know you like the show. Or if you hate the show, let us know. And get, a, get in contact with us. Let me know what you think. I know what I think. I'm always talking, right? But follow Riverside Chats on any social media. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And join the conversation today. I'd love to hear from you. Remember that we are in the middle of an election. So you can find people who want to represent you talking like human beings in our backlog. Thank you so much for listening. As always, I am Tom Noblock. This has been Riverside Chance.